This is an ABC podcast. My guest today is Christian Wright. Christian lives in the little town of Nullumboy, right on the tip of the Northern Territory. And his job there is an unusual one. Christian doesn't work in the mines like most of the white fellas in town. He's a midwife working with the Indigenous women of remote Arnhem Land. Hi, Christian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Very well. So, Christian, you're in, you're in Arnhem Land. Whose country are you on? Currently from the Yolngu people's land. And today we're going to cover a bit of land. So it's going to, I want to acknowledge the Yolngu people, the Andaliakwa people and the Numbarindi people. We couldn't get through to you the other day. What, what was going on in town? <laughs> um, well, the story that was being told was that the mine had drilled through a fibre optic cable and cut off all the telecommunications for the town. <laughs> and things like this seem to happen from time to time, um, whether it's weather or somewhere else in another community. And so we were without communications for a couple of days. And, I mean, you're already geographically far away, isolated. Do you feel isolated where you are? Yeah, like it, it, it really feels like you're in this town where people are trying to, to make, you know, make their living, but the, the land is just clawing back at you at every direction. Yeah, it feels really wild up here. <laughs> what does that do for the sense of community? Like, does it make you kind of connect together more so, perhaps, than if you were in a city where you could ring anyone anywhere anytime you wanted? Yeah, or when the, when the comms went down, you know, you just can't even send a simple text. So we had mates rocking up to our house in the morning, you know, saying, oh, I couldn't send you a text, I thought I'd pop around, can I borrow this, can I do that? <laughs> what about um, when the power's down but someone's got a, a working air conditioner? What does that mean for, for visitors? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they get a lot more visitors. Sometimes you just get in your car or on your bike and just go for a ride just so you can get some breeze. It gets pretty hot and humid up here. Well, what's it like there at the moment this time of year? We've had an unusually wet, wet season. And so it's, um, it's still quite muggy and humid. And we're waiting for that all to shift. Um, the dry is going to start soon, or shifting into the dry. So it should start cooling down soonish. And do you get those big electrical storms up there, or is it more just rain throughout yeah, the day? Yeah, we do. Yeah, because we're on a peninsula, we get some really random weather patterns. You get those electrical storms, you get the rain. Sometimes the rains completely miss us and they drench everywhere else in the Arnhem Land. And then you also get these really big cyclone seasons and cyclone swells. And there's a few of us that go surfing at, uh, around this time of year, you know, when the cyclone swells are just hitting it. When you've got the Gulf Stream tides coming up, meeting the, the, other, the other currents from the north end. What's that surfing like? Is it terrifying or exciting? Oh, we have a, we have a working theory that crocodiles don't have dorsal fins, so maybe they don't like being tossed around in the waves. <laughs> Yeah, we never go out on our own, but um, yeah, we usually go out in a group. <laughs> so, but crocodiles are, um, must be a real risk up there swimming in, in Arnhem Land. Yeah, it's, it's one of the only places where if you're, um, like yesterday I was out diving off some of the reefs, it's uh, when you're hunting, you're being hunted. <laughs> it's a bit of excitement to things. Do you usually see or do you often see crocs when, when you're out? Like, did you see any yesterday? No, you don't generally see them. You hear about them and then everyone starts taking photos and then you know where they are. But we know that they're everywhere. <laughs> How different is this part of Australia, Christian, to where you grew up? Oh, it's very different. You've got a, we've got a Woolworths, which we're proud about, but you've got to wait for the, um, the barge to come in once a week or so to bring the fresh fruit. And even then, you know, it's not that fresh. It's had to 
be taken from a distance to get to you. I grew up in the south of Sydney, uh, or the very first suburb out of Sydney in Helensburg. It's kind of uh, in the national park in Darawal country, between two big cities, between Sydney and Wollongong, and it's near the beach. And um, it was bush there as well. It probably wasn't as wild as this. It was less crocodiles and <laughs> box jellyfish. <laughs> Tell me about, about your mum, Christian. What kind of life did she dream of when she was a kid? My mum, she wanted, when she was a little girl, to build her own house, become a school teacher, and have six kids. And how did that play out? She did all three of them. <laughs> yep, I'm one of six boys. <laughs> six boys? Yeah. Where are you in the lineup? I'm the second born. This... I'm a typical second born, I'm told. And what's that mean? I'm the peacemaker in the family. <laughs> and do you remember each of those younger brothers coming along? I have a really vivid memory of um, when I was a little kid. It must have been one of my younger brothers. I ran outside and I saw my mum and dad under the clothesline in the backyard just kind of whispering to each other really quietly. And I ran out excited going, oh, something's happening. What's going on? And um, they saw me coming and mum turned to me and said, you know, Christian, I'm pregnant. And that's probably one of my earliest memories and just like the excitement. And I yelled out, you're pregnant. She goes, shh, we don't want all the neighbours to hear. But um, that was one of my earliest memories. But yeah, I remember um, helping, you know, as the older brothers, you help care for the little ones when they're born and you, and you take them on adventures. <laughs> was your mum a bit of a local celebrity with the, the six sons? It sounds like something out of a fairy story. Oh, I'm sure she stood out, yeah. <laughs> People can be funny about about women having only sons, not daughters. She, did she get a bit of that weird that weird criticism that mothers of sons can get? Yeah, yeah. One of the um, and we all get it as brothers, um, as boys. When we tell people we're one of six boys, usually the comments you get are, "Oh, your poor mum." That's probably the most common, and I think that's probably painful for my mum to hear that because she she thinks it's the best. Like she wanted to have more, and my dad had to put a stop to it. <laughs> And uh, my mum's actually amazing. She's a really strong woman, especially to have six boys. I'm, I'm just trying to think about the logistics of, of six boys, I guess just six children. Did it mean that you ate, you know, a lot of mints? Was spag bowl a, a, a yes. common common meal at your place? Yeah, from the tin. Oh, I can't eat it now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think she would bulk buy for all of us. And it would mean if someone didn't like something, we never had that. And so I remember being in my 20s and having mangoes for the first time, um, trying asparagus for the first time, all these foods, and just, like, mangoes blew my mind. They were like a lolly fruit. They're, yeah, they're my favourite fruit by far. <laughs> and what were mornings like? How did you all, you know, get ready for school in time? Yeah, there was a lot of, um, you know, um, running around, and, and then my mum would have us all lined up at the kitchen sink, and um, she would stand there, and one by one, she'd get a big handful of water and splash it on our heads and comb our hair, and... And we all hated it because that was our morning shower and then death by comb. It was just this <laughs> horrible scratching across our foreheads while she's trying to rush and get all our hair done. <laughs> so she dreamt of the, the six kids. She got that. What about the house that she dreamt of building? Did, did that come to play the way she wanted? Yeah, she did. Um, our grandpa, he was a builder, and um, he built the house for her. And there's a big family joke that my parents still haven't paid him for it. But uh, she she had a real hard childhood, and so I think she always dreamed of a secret hiding place or something in a house as a little girl that she never had, and so she built one into this house. It was like a, a tunnel that went from her, her um, walk-in wardrobe through kind of the roof and, and back wall into the lounge room and it was a little door. I don't even know how my parents would have fit in there. It was this tiny little door and it was always we always used to sneak in there 
and you know pull away the suitcases, find the door, and then climb in and. It was like a little storage, um, little hallway, and climb through it, and we loved it. Then I only found out years later, my mum purposely planned that in there. So you, you grew up sort of near bushland. Did you spend much time out in the bush with your brothers as, as kids? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were always running around, you know. We'd go out in the morning and come back at sunset. We had to be back before dark. Or we'd come back begging our money for some, you know, $2 to go down and buy some hot chips. But um, we loved the bush, riding our bikes, running around, finding cubbies, building cubbies, stealing cubbies. How about your your own sense of your future when you were a kid growing up, Christian? What did you imagine your life might, might turn out? If your mum had this very strong idea of what she wanted, did you have that too? Uh, my mum, I don't think she ever forced on us or told us what we had to be and, and I was just cruising, like, I didn't have any, any idea really. I know we, she always had books around the house, we always read a lot of books and she always made sure we learned a musical instrument, that was big for her, we all learned a different instrument. I remember when I was nine years old, I think it was, or younger, I had this experience one day in the back room in the afternoon sun with the divine where I heard this voice say to me, you're going to be a missionary. And I remember running into my mum's bedroom and saying, Oi, mum, what's a missionary? And she kind of looked at me and told me, and she said, why? And uh, apparently I said to her, because God's just told me I'm going to be one. And from that second, I knew, it's like I knew exactly what I, what I was going to do. And, um, and my mum said, yeah, you, from that second on, you just seem to have that purpose. And I think the best way to describe it was it was more of a picture that I got. And it was this idea of um, me just working in a place that I wasn't from. It was like a more of a tropical kind of community, I guess. And I was just working with people that were very different to me, but I was just living there with my family and alongside them. And that was just this very, it was quite vague, but it was still very specific for me as a boy. And from that second on, I just, I just knew. I always knew what I was going to do. <laughs> And did that look like nursing for you? Were you drawn to to work medically with people? Yeah, so like just like kind of that picture of, of going somewhere like that. I just kind of, as I grew older, I started learning um, about the developing world. Our parents had were very uh, were good with us and took us to Aboriginal communities growing up and, and were very clear to kind of break down those barriers of otherness to other people. And, and I think as the more and more I started to learn about the developing world, I started asking lots of questions to lots of people. And um, the wisdom that I got from some older people early on was just like, don't be an idiot and go over there thinking you're going to save the day. Stay here, study and get skills so that when you go over, you have a trade you can offer, you can be of service when you're over there. And so I guess, um, I don't know, I just kind of naturally got into nursing I guess I just that was just seemed to be an obvious thing like um, medicine or nursing and I think at the time I, I got the marks and I looked at it and I thought I think I'd rather do nursing and um, it was sold as something where it's more alongside more relational being alongside people and I went alright I'll give that a crack and, and, I, and I loved it. You spent some time in East Timor learning about international medicine who was one of your special patients there? Oh, um, there was a witch doctor there. <laughs> he um, he lived on this mountaintop above the town, and I remember his um, more ceremonial medicine, I guess, wasn't working on his wife. Um, she had malaria, and so he asked us. We were there working with um, some local clinics, and through them, he asked if we would come up and 
and uh, he wanted to trial some of our Western medicine for his poor wife. And so we went up there on the hill, and I remember walking through his house and seeing all these people under the house lying on these straw mats in almost like these kind of cane drawers. And I didn't know if they were dead or alive, but it was very clear we weren't there for them. They were his patients. We were there just for his wife. And so we went up and kind of gave her anti-malarials and explained how they work and their regime and how, how to take them. And, and yeah, he was just kind of grateful and just listened. And then um, we just we kind of had lunch with him under the clothesline and then left again. But he was a very prominent man. You know, he had the, the village piped up through these bamboo pipes, all the water to him, to his house. He was kind of like a, a leader amongst them. What did you learn or, or what was different about the way people who were sick were treated in villages like that than the way you saw them being treated in Dili, in the capital? I think when we were in Dili, some of the kind of medical centres we were there, it was very clear that um, like they had a lot more, I guess, people presenting, but people were lined up and just, you know, they were just tickets, you know, and... What, what's your problem? Write it here. Okay, quick listen at the chest. All right, move on. Here's your ticket for your x-ray. Kind of churning through these numbers. Whereas in the village, like these beautiful nurses we worked with who ran these clinics, you know, and they were surviving off donations or um, government grants or whatever they were on. It was all about the people and their story. And they had connection with every single person and they knew who was related to who. And it was all about... It was a bigger picture to their ailments, you know. It was... Let's talk. Let's listen. Um, you're going to need a lift home, or you know what's what's happening with else with your family. And often it wasn't just the person arriving; they would arrive with their family. Um, and so I think that was a big shock to me because there was a clear difference. There just seemed to be so much more life when these people were treated in a consult or a minor surgery, and it was treating them as a whole with their family, and, and their story was important. Who they were was important. So you were gaining these different understandings maybe of, of healthcare and, and developing your skills as a nurse. What made you then want to train as a midwife? Uh, well, because I was, you know, I asked a lot of questions and um, I just, I knew where I was going and I just didn't want to show up and be what other people told me, you know, talked of these people who did a lot of damage thinking they were going to show up and save the day, and especially unskilled people. So I just, I had asked a lot of older people who'd been there before me and in a way I formulated this 10-year plan of all these things I wanted to skill up in and so I after I graduated nursing I went and did that international health and development um, I got into emergency and disaster training I went to a pediatric hospital in Sydney and learned what I could with in terms of pediatric medicine um, emergency medicine and then um, I actually then flew to England and studied tropical diseases at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and then when I came back, I, I it was on the cards, and I knew that there was all these women having babies overseas, and there seemed to be a few issues with that, but I kept getting told, no, no, it'll be inappropriate, you're a man, you know, you, you don't go down that area, you just focus on everything else, but it just kept coming up, and then the WHO report came out that said 300,000 women die every year from easily preventable conditions, you know, such as bleeding after birth. And this, and you know, 99% of these women are in developing countries, and that blew me away. And I just said, I can't, I can't not do anything about this. I'm going to see this when I'm there. Even if I, it's inappropriate for me to be there, I need to know how to train others at least, you know. I, I can't go in not knowing about this. And so my, my impression was like, I'll just get the ticket of 
how it all works and maybe I can train up for local women, etc. And then um, I started ringing around Australia to seeing, uh, oh, I heard you can do, you know, like a post-grad diploma or something to do with midwifery and um, I was getting a bit of resistance and then I rang up WA. You're getting a bit of resistance because you were a fella? Oh, yeah, they were telling me like, oh, you know, the guys don't really last long in this course or that course or we're not doing this kind of program here, you need to study this first and so... During that, though, it, a lot of these different universities were saying, have you heard about WA? Have you heard about WA? They do a master's program, uh, you know, in midwifery as a postgrad master's, and you, you know, and you work at the same time that you're studying. And, and I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And at the time, there was a, it was um, partly funded by the government. And so I thought, oh, that's great, you know, save a bit of coin. <laughs> and I, I remember ringing up, and I, was, I got some... Um, some noob on the other end who didn't know what, what I was talking about. And I got quite frustrated. But then the course coordinator for the, the Masters of Midwifery in Perth rang me back. And she said, oh, I heard you've been inquiring about our course. And we had a chat for about 45 minutes. And and she was just so inspiring. And she said, yeah, we'd love you to come. We'll support you coming. Look, we've had a few guys before, but they've dropped out. They don't, you know, it's hard to retain them. But, you know, we'll support you. And she was just really enthusiastic. And I went, you know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I packed what I could fit into my high ace van, sold the rest, and I drove across the Nullarbor. I didn't even have anywhere to live. I just knew where I was going. And all my friends, friends thought I was an idiot. Like, why are you going to do midwifery? Why WA? <laughs> so, so she was encouraging. She was enthusiastic. Yeah. But did other people say to you, you know, you shouldn't be doing this as a man. It's not appropriate for you as a man. Well, how did you counter those those criticisms that this is women's, you know, this is the ultimate women's business? What are you mm. doing getting involved? Well, I think at the time it was, yeah, it, it just people didn't understand. Like my mates who, especially those who weren't medical nursing or anything, they were just like, oh, that's a bit weird. Why would you want to go and look at that? Isn't that all vaginas and this and that and, and blood and guts? And I was like, oh, actually, I don't know, but I need to learn it because... You know, the who tells me that all these women are dying from it. I can't go somewhere, you know, if I end up in PNG and know nothing about this. And, uh, yeah, and I guess the older the older men who I'd gone to, it's interesting, I hadn't really talked to many older women at that time about this, but the older men were saying, yeah, no, it'll be inappropriate. These were doctors, you know. No, 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 it'll be inappropriate. It's not for you. But I remember my mum was just like, yeah, go for it. You'll be amazing. You'll love it. And I was like, all right, mum, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we need to update that term? Is midwife the right, the right thing to call you, Christian? Yeah, it is because it, it gets – that's another common question. It comes from old English um, where mid means with and wife was W-Y-F and it means the woman. So it's whoever's with the woman. Ah, so you're not the wife. You're with no. the woman. If I was people go, oh, shouldn't you be a mid-husband? I'm like, well, I'm that too. I'm there for the fella as well. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started to learn about pregnancy and birth over in, mm. in WA, was it like you expected it to be? Did it fit with your understanding, understanding that you already had of anatomy and biology? No, it was so frustrating. I nearly walked in the first six months. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I just thought, like, what are we being taught? Why Why is the rest of the class, all these girls, accepting this? It what was, do you I mean? Think, well, I wanted this um, real, you know, I guess, medical formulaic um, algorithms of how things work. I wanted A plus B equals C, you know? Like, the maybe that's just the masculine mind. Or like, our, our plumbing, right? Everything, every tube's connected. <laughs> you know, you know where everything's coming from, where it's going. There's no, there's no guesswork. 
But with women, their bodies are so amazing. You have these these ovaries that release an egg into, I don't know, nothingness, and then somehow the tube knows to, to sweep and suck it up. And But what if it doesn't? Oh, it just knows. You know, that's what I kept getting told. It just, it just knows, you know. And I'm like, what do you mean it just knows? <laughs> and just the way that a, a woman births, you know. I thought, oh, yeah, so where's the graph? Where's the... You know, everyone should dilate a certain a certain centimetre per minute. And what, what's going on? How do I figure all this out? How do I plot it? They're like, oh, no, no, actually, every woman and every baby is completely different. You know, and I'm like, all right, well, we know when, they're, when their babies are due. Well, that's more of an estimation. We actually don't even know how to use that formula um, <laughs> properly. But it's a est- rough estimation when the baby's due. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, is this all guesswork? What, what is this? And my um, my lecturer was really kind to me and just stuck with me. Went, no, no, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. And then, um, yeah, I think I eventually got to this point where I just started realising that it's it's not a formula. You can't put women on a formula. You can't plot them on a graph. And um, and it's and it's an art form, um, being a midwife and and recognising early signs of this and that. And um, and I even learnt a lot about watching like the different noises like at, at a dinner party you know my mates might get me to do the different noises of a woman at different stages in labor but it's because it's like you can there's other signs you don't need like a, a graph at times and there's you know in like there's this amazing thing that like on a on a woman's back you get these little pressure marks and there's a purple line that grows up her back for every centimeter dilated she is there's this purple line that grows and then disappears after the birth it's amazing. <laughs> I've had three children and I had no idea of that. Yeah. And, and you know what? When when you're there and, and the, the birth is happening, you know, it's the universe being created at the woman's feet. It's phenomenal. It, it just blows you away. And I think as a guy, I would never, ever understand it completely. And so I think my curiosity and, and just being blown away every single time. So how did you come to see your role then? It sounds like a different sort of relationship than, than a nurse with someone who's sick. What's the role of the midwife ultimately in, in relation to that woman giving mm. birth? I think um, one thing I think my studies before I did midwifery really helped me was um, we talked about international health and development and, you know, working in East Timor and, I think one of the kind of snap moments in my mind, the epiphany that I got was, oh, this is in health and development, you know, you want to empower a community, you want to live alongside them, you want to um, build them up, you want to work with them, you know, where you start with the pigs and chickens and then they trust you with their children and then it's health and agriculture and at the end of the day, you walk away, there's no statue in your name, you know, they might even forget who you are, that's fine because they've done it, they've done it themselves. And then midwifery, it's like a microcosm of that. You take this scared first-time mum and her partner or support person and you're investing in them. You're showing them you're not actually sick. You're an athlete. You're in a hyper-healthy state affecting everyone around you. That's why people run to the bump on your belly. (laughs) You know, they're amazed at you and, and you're building them up, building them confidence, giving them knowledge to the point where they get stoked and they're taking on their own pregnancy and... And when they go into labour, it's their labour and birth. It's theirs. You're just in the background. You're just there in case they need assistance or if, you know, hand or something, but it's theirs. And they do it themselves and their partner's helping them through it. And then when they birth, you know, eventually you're, you're, in the, you're still in the background and you eventually have to fade out even more because it's their accomplishment. They've done it themselves. They've fought hard to become a mum and they've won for the second, third, fourth time. It's their family. That's the role of the midwife and to to be that person throughout. 
Did what you were learning and experiencing as you started training as a midwife give you new appreciation for your mum and, and what she'd done? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, like, I never gave a second thought about... Um, I just figured all our births were all tickety-boo, you know, nothing. You just you just come out, right? But then after doing midwifery, I was just like, oh, well, all this stuff, like, there's women are having miscarriages and and, and there's problems in, in birth and... and, and some people have to use forceps and, and some people have emergencies and, well, oh, and, and was I breastfed for how long, you know? And so I rang my mum up and I, and I was like, mum, what happened with me when I was born, you know? What, was, what happened when I came out and, and I asked about all my brothers and I was asking for every detail and have you had any miscarriages or, you know, and, and she loved it. She was just like, oh, I'll tell you all about it, you know, my mum... <laughs> She got the epidural with every one of us, and, and she loved it. She said, oh, I was just reading a magazine, and I felt the pressure coming. <laughs> and I go, quick, get that, get the mirror. And she got a big, this big mirror on wheels put there so she could watch the baby coming out. And she's just full of, you know, beautiful stories about birth, and she thinks it's the best thing ever. But, um, yeah, I just remember asking my mum all the details. What happened? How did this happen? What was Dad there, and what did he do? I guess there's, there's theory and then there's practice. What was it like the first time you were midwife to a woman birth well I was you know obviously terrified because um there's just so many layers of otherness me being a guy me being a, a midwife and being and, and new to the job you know um, and just kind of being completely trying to accept that I'm completely out of control <laughs> I'm like I'm helpless here you know because I can't do this for her it's only the woman can do this but I remember the baby being born and um yeah, like I said, it was just like the universe opening up. Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. Find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you were doing this incredible work and having these yep. connections with, with families. Why did you leave? I had this this yearning still in me, like this 10-year plan. I still, there was still more to, I had to learn. And I wanted to go remote and learn remote, you know, in the sticks, like with little resources. I needed to know how to function in that environment. And uh, I was looking around at a few different jobs in remote places. And then one place I hadn't even tried to look was up in remote Arnhem Land. And I just got this call one day at work from this manager of, of the emergency department saying, look, we've got your CV on my desk and we'd like to offer you a job. And look, you only need to give two weeks' notice. Why don't you just quit and come straight up? Well, that sounds amazing, but I can't because I've got all these women, um, you know, going into labour in the next couple of months. I can't, can't abandon them. But I'll tell you what, in about two and a half months, I'll come up. And so I did. But again, I just packed what I could and I had a troopie now and, and sold the rest and, and drove up, not knowing really where I was headed. I got my dad to fly over and we drove across the Nullarbor back to Sydney so I could see my family and then I drove up to Arnhem Land from there. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> like once we turn off from, um, there's a big long dirt track when you turn off the sealed road 
up towards Catherine, and uh, there's there's nothing on that. I remember my manager saying, "Look, just watch out for buffalo, and when you get here, don't go swimming. There's box jellyfish and crocodiles." <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah, and it was true. Like along the way, you know, you, I got charged. I thought the troopy would be a bit of a deterrent, but no, these buffalo they, they charged the the troopy. And and what was the town like? What did it look like when you arrived? Was it like you expected this remote part of Australia was going to be? Oh, I expected a dust bowl, to be honest. But when I got there, there was this little established town where I am now, and uh, you know they got a bank, they got a, <laughs> they got a referral hospital, they got a, um, a Woolworths. Like so, I was a bit like, oh, actually, this is there's a lot of infrastructure here. This is really this is really well done, you know. And um, there's a pub here. This is great. And uh, but I think at the same time, there's almost this, like I said before, this unsteadiness. Like, but you still have to be careful. The land is trying to claw back this town. You know, everything's alive and and the trees, the grasses, the fires, the you know, the seagulls, the the crocs, everything's there and it's trying to claw back the land. So yeah, <laughs> there is a constant kind of unsteadiness about it too. But it's exciting. You were working with women in the town, then also out in, in remote communities. Yep. What happened on your first day at work in a remote community? Yeah, so I was starting to get flown out to these remote, remote communities that were very, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly what you picture when you think of a very remote community. And uh, one in particular, on my first day there, there's a, it's kind of a, a melting pot for a few different clans, and um, there's a big island off the coast too that they regularly interact with. They come across in um, their tinnies and canoes all the time, and uh they have uh, regular bashings, they call them, where they have like a Christmas Day bashing and an Easter bashing, where um, it's more, it's kind of like a, you know, a special Boxing Day um, box or a Christmas Day boxing match, where the, the clans get together and different prize-fighting boys will get together and have a big punch-up, and you, you'll you'll know it's on because you'll see all the old ladies running with their camp chairs to get a good seat to watch <laughs> in the middle of the street uh, on the dirt road, and um, and everyone will be filming it. You know, you'll you'll see them all on YouTube. But there's also like a bit of rivalry. This this particular community, I was told, was one of the last to outlaw traditional spearing, and so sometimes there's you know fights erupt between different clans for different reasons. And uh, on my first day there, there was a bit of a riot that erupted, and it escalated to machetes, and then um and spears, and some boys from the islands had come over with some boys here, and and then two of them pulled out crossbows and started firing crossbows into the crowd. And unfortunately, one of the boys fired indiscriminately into the crowd and a woman was sheltering under a house, thinking she'd be safe, and she got hit. And, you know, as soon as we see, hear the clanging, we just lock up the health centre, and um, you know, to be safe. Um, but we hear this honking, and out the front there's his car, and this woman gets out of the car, and she goes, I can't move my arm! And um, we looked, and the, the crossbow, like the bolt, had pinned her arm to a chest. It had gone into a chest through her arm. And so we're like, oh no! So we rush her in onto the emergency bed, and and you know we're really worried about a pneumothorax where the lung gets punctured and it deflates, and you know you can die from that. And um, so I have this big kind of wide bore needle that I've got hovering over a chest, ready to puncture the the lung to reinflate it, you know, in case you know she can't breathe or you know there's pressure on the heart. And but strangely, she's still talking, and her all her observations, all the heart rate and blood pressures, they're all great. And I can hear equal lung entry on each side with my stethoscope. We don't have an ultrasound; we've got we've got no X-ray. So straight away, we're calling aeromedical services to fly in. So they just jump on the plane, and they're coming in, but and they're circling, but they can't land because there's a huge riot going on. There's a there's an airstrip they've got to travel to to the clinic. 
and there's only one cop from the town, and he's barricaded himself in because he's scared too. Um, in the cop station, so there's nothing we can do. So they have to turn around and go back, and then they, um, then the the government have to send in the special riot police, you know, with their night vision goggles and all that stuff. They come in, and they have to go from house to house and find the boys with the crossbows and kind of sort of calm the situation, get some police in from other towns, and then it's safe for the aeromedical crew from Darwin to come in, land, and then they come to the clinic. So we've been here for some hours now. It's well, well into midnight hours and uh they come in with their little ultrasound machine and they're checking no no both lungs are inflated and she's like yeah i'm right and anyway she gets on the plane they fly back um it went in four centimeters into her chest somehow miraculously missed all lung tissue they pulled it out within half an hour of her waking up from you know she's walking around having a cup of tea and and, and wanting to come back chris this is the most <laughs> incredible story when you were in those hours waiting with her hoping it wasn't gonna mm. you know cause a, a, a fatal injury who did you ring for advice about the arrow oh <laughs> i've got a bow hunting mate um who's big on it and he likes to hunt buffalo with his bow hunt bow hunting in so i rang him and i said oh look i can read the brand off this this bolt and um it's a carbon fiber one i don't want to cut it short because obviously it's moving around and causing pain in the chest but i want to cut it short but if i do will it shatter everywhere and he said and he was giving me advice like no no i use these these um bolts they're okay you can cut them short it shouldn't shatter um and so yeah so he, he was very helpful and um and did you yeah, cut it? Trim it yeah we did we trimmed it short you know just so it wasn't flapping in the wind and um yeah bring some relief to it oh my gosh so this is your first day in this new kind <laughs> yeah. of job this Wild, is a miles away from the the city of perth and the birthing center did you think okay i'm i'm driving back out of here this is insane no, no. I was just like, right on. This is awesome. And um, and that was so lovely. Like, even though she's lying there, you know, we're having a good chat. This is, oh, beautiful people. And even the guy who dropped her off, he, he really cared about her. Like, um, he wasn't related to her, but he chucked her in the car and, and like, you know, come on, we'll take you to the clinic. And uh, things quietened down after that. Like, the next morning, I was walking to work again. You know, it, it's kind of fluctuates. From time to time in different communities, it flares up. And usually there's good reason behind why um, there's often tensions between local authorities or maybe between their own clan members. But it's not that common. Um, far more the common occurrence is the beautiful, vibrant... You know, being invited to ceremony and and the dancing and the tra- and like tradition and culture is so strong here, and just the regular like there's a lot of um, you know they catch dugong or turtle and and there's a lot of people being invited around to share in the meal. Beautiful people. I'm constantly getting asked out on boats or let's go fishing or um, let's go hunting together. We'll go crabbing. You know, you're sitting around in people's front yards at the fires. Like, it's a very outdoor experience. You, you don't hide in your house. You, you, you're sitting out with the community. And if you, if you try, if you try and learn some language, you try and be respectful and realize that you're not on, it's not our land. You know, this is their, their world. It's not even land. It's world, right? It's, this is theirs. They see that. And then, um, and you know, you can get invited to some beautiful things. How did you go about building mm. trust with the women in the community, Christian, particularly when you first arrived and they didn't, they didn't know you? I think um, connection to, to land and relationship to people is important. So it's good for, them to, for people to know where you're from and also learning connections between different groups of people and who's related to who is key. But I think what you're asking is in this particular community... I didn't know them. Like this, these are separate to kind of where I stay on the peninsula. This is very a lot further south and um, different people group. 
And so when I was there, I remember the first time kind of encountering some antenatal women and one of them just saying, you know, shame that you're here, shame you are a man. And I was like, oh, all right. And, but slowly over time, you know, I'd go out fishing and I'd start dropping the fish off at these women's houses and, you know, the guys would come out like, no, 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 this one here is for the pregnant one. <laughs> Take it to her. <laughs> you know, she needs to eat some good fresh fish. And then I started this kind of mums and bubs um, group where I'd go around and pick up all the, the pregnant women and we'd go to the shops and I'd let them choose a big feed, big healthy feed hopefully, and we'd come back and we'd have a big feed at the clinic in the in our meeting room, you know, and just kind of chatting and letting them ask questions about their referral hospital or just about anything they want to know. And, and I remember it was at one of those meetings, that's where I heard the shame thing, and then that same woman driving back to her, dropping her back at the house, she waited till everyone else got off the bus and she said to me, look, oh, I'm sorry, it's just that I'm shit scared, you know, I'm a f- I'm, I haven't had a baby before and, and I don't know, I don't know, I'm scared. And I went, okay, no, that's all right, you know, we've got time, we've got time. And um, I think you learn, again, like in midwifery, it was women who taught me everything I know and, and build up my confidence, the other female midwives. But it's the women in these communities too, the, especially the older women that kind of taught me language. They would sit down with me and teach me words. I Wherever I went, I had a piece of paper and I'd have phrases, simple, start off with simple stuff, you know, please, thank you, uh, how are you, good, um, where's the pain, um, are you having painting, as they say, or started working through my list, and I'd write kind of phonetics, my own phonetic spelling of how they say things, and, and they were, they, they loved it, they went, oh, you want to learn? Yeah, yeah, and they'd sit with me, and, and these older women would teach me words, and the language was always the key. For example, there's, as a guy... There's strict taboos, like you can't in front of women talk about toilet business or kind of bodily functions in front of a woman and vice versa. So like, I'm like, how am I going to do this? <laughs> so what I would do is, I'd, and I need to know if they've got a, a UTI, because that can bring on preterm birth, for example, or if there's any blood coming, you know? And so I, I would say to them, look, I have to ask you a sensitive question. And they'd say, okay. And I'd put my head right near theirs, so our ears are kind of parallel. I'm looking past them. I'm not making eye contact. And I'd say very quietly, do you have any stinging when you pass urine? And there'd be a pause for like a minute or two, and then this little no or yes. And then that'd be it. I'd leave it, you know. Or if I had to ask another question, I would, but I'd leave it and change the subject and, and kind of we'd move back. And, and that was okay, and they, and they kind of accepted that. And for the words for like, um, I remember... The first time I tried the word for vagina, this old woman slapped me. Dead. <laughs> you, you do not say that word, especially as a guy. Women can say it, but you cannot. And I went, all right, I'm so sorry. Well, what can I say, though, if I need to? And they said, we're going to give you a word. And they gave me this word. And I didn't know what it meant for ages, but I now know it translates to baby house. And when I say this word, the women kind of look at me, and they really, like, it's like this look of appreciation. Oh, you're trying to be culturally safe. You know, we, we and they respond to that. And so I think learning these words, right? And then and I talked about that woman who said, I'm worried. And I said, no, you've got time. It's all right, we'll work together. But she didn't have time. Her waters ruptured at 23 weeks, which is way too early. Like, babies don't live at that gestation. And we rushed her to the clinic, and, you know, she's panicking. And I'm like, all right, and we're, and we're doing all this stuff, checking her. And then I said, look, there's, there was a female doctor there, and I, the doctor was down there having a look, just trying to see what was going on. And But she wasn't... You know, she wasn't an obstetrician. She wasn't trained in that area. And so she wasn't quite sure of what to look at. And I said to this woman, look, I've got this female doctor for you, but I think you need me to have a look. Is that okay? 
And she goes, yeah, okay, you do it. No one else, you do it. And I'm like, all right. So I had a look. It was really quick, and I could see that she was dilating four centimetres, and the membranes were bulging. Like, this baby was coming. So we're calling the aeromedical services in, and they're flying as quick as they can. And they land. We chuck her on the ambulance, and we're taking her out to the ambulance. And she's really scared. I'm trying to reassure her. And we get to the to the airstrip, and a male doctor walks out off the plane, and she goes, nope, I'm not getting on that plane, I'm not leaving. And I said, but why? Because he's a man. I said, yeah, but I'm a man. She goes, yeah, but we trust you. You come to Darwin and birth our babies. You come with me, we trust you. And I was like, I was in tears. I was like, I'm so sorry, I can't come, I can't leave. And she's say, but you can just come, I can't. Anyway, so I walked onto the plane with her and tried to get her comfortable. And But, you know, we're in a rush. She flies off. She had the baby um, while she's in Darwin. 23 goes, weeks, that's, yeah. that's so, that's so preemie. Yeah, there was a lot of worry. And she she went, the baby's obviously in this, the neonatal ICU and she's with it. But I gave her my mobile and, you know, and she's sending me pictures, she's just stoked, you know, this baby's hooked up to everything, but, but she's amazed, she's got this live baby with her, and she's so happy, and she's ringing me going, because she's quite a prominent woman, and she's the one that's culturally responsible for looking after her father, this old man in a wheelchair, and, and these other people, and she's, you know, ringing me, worried, going, can you check on the old man, can you do this, can you do that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, and I know if I don't do this, and go around the house and check on him, she'll... She'll get up and leave Darwin and come back, and that won't be good for the baby. So I'm, I'm making sure this is happening and just maintaining regular contact. And and when she does come back, this baby is so beautiful, <laughs> and it does not look like a preemie baby. It's a miracle, and that's what she calls it, the miracle baby. She came back and she paraded through the street, and everyone's coming out to see this baby. She's showing him off like Simba from the line. <laughs> And, you know, and just saying, this is Miracle Baby, this is Miracle Baby. And and it was. It's still referred to. This baby's over a year old now. And um, when I see them, she she points to me and says, Rock, that's the midwife. That's him. And she has all these words for me. And and um, I always come over and have a cuddle. And she's like, this is your Miracle Baby. I'm like, no, this is your Miracle Baby. It's beautiful. And I think that story alone, you know, that earned me a lot of trust too with the other women. And I think that's what it comes to. It's it's up to the each individual woman and... and Building that trust is so important, um, that relationship. That's an amazing story, Christian. What other, are there any other, other experiences you've had either in those remote, remote communities or in the town that you're at now that have really stuck with you as, as, as the kind of experiences you have there but wouldn't have been having if you'd stayed in Perth or, or working anywhere else? What we do in the communities, currently it's like there's amazing programs working on Aboriginal doulas and called Jakamias and but at the moment it's not safe for women to birth on country in their community without the net without the appropriate resources and which is you know it's a travesty because that's what they want to do that's their culture but um at the moment we fly them from about 37 weeks onwards sometimes earlier to a referral hospital in Arnhem Land and it's called sit-down, going for sit-down. And they just have to sit there and wait for the baby to come. In a, often, in a, it's like going to another country. It's like me sending you to Indonesia. You won't speak the language, because for, for a lot of these Aboriginal women, English is their fifth language. And you'll have to go to... Imagine me sending you to Indo, and you have to sit around for a month waiting for your baby, you know, and sometimes on your own. Um, so it's quite hard. So, but I think working in these communities, I got to know the women beforehand... And I'm still working a few days a week at this referral hospital, so I get to see them when they're at the hospital. So I've got this kind of continuity of care relationship with these women. 
just by like it wasn't planned that way, but it's it's working out amazing. And sometimes, you know, when they're waiting around, um, me and my girlfriend or a few others, we might some of the other midwives, we'll take them out fishing, and we'll go to the beach, and and in in all every consistently, I've found in those Aboriginal cultures, all the different ones there, seafood's big, and when you're pregnant, oysters are a big deal. Like they're good f- strength food for the baby and the mum. And so when we're there, <laughs> I remember there was a. Uh, a woman who was from Torres Strait, and she was living in one of these communities, and she was nervous, first-time mum, and I told her beforehand, I said, listen, there are white women in Australia who pay good money to birth like your ancestors did, (laughs) on birthing stools, you know, on all fours, standing up, upright birthing, because, you know, they do a lot of stuff with birthing trees and birthing rocks. And I said, don't lie on the bed. If you look, because we know now, you know, the physics of it is terrible. You lie on your back on a bed in labour and you close your pelvis by 30%, you know, so it's it's not good. You're not creating a lot of room. So I'm telling them, don't get on the bed. <laughs> anyway, so she goes to um to this referral hospital and and I'm there and I'm seeing them and I'm taking her and a partner out. We go out for um, oysters and um, we, we chip them off the rocks with chisels. But this particular Torres Strait woman, she's like, nah, I don't want these oysters. I want good New Zealand oysters. So we had to go to the, we had to go to the, the pub um, to get those oysters, you know. <laughs> They're very particular. I'm like, all right, you know, whatever you, whatever you need. And so, um, but I remember, I wasn't there for her birth, but I remember her telling me this story. She goes, oh, I got into labor. I started painting. And so I thought, and it was really busy. And so the midwives couldn't be with her that day. So she's, um, so she just kept quiet to herself. She's like, no, I just went to the stairwells. She snuck out, went to the stairwell and marched up and down the stairwells, just like I told her, get those hips moving, open the pillows. And then I needed a break, so I went in and just kind of lay down in the hot shower. Then I got strength, and I went and did the stairwells again, marched up and down, and did it sideways too. And I'm like, oh, great, great. And she came back, and then she goes, and then the baby started coming. So I went and stood and leant on the pole next to the bed, and I started having my baby. And the midwife ran in just as the baby was coming out and caught it just before as it came out. And she said, and I grabbed it and, and brought it up to my chest, and it was mine. And I did it. And the reason I found out about this story, because I had gone back to community um, for a stint, and she came back, and I heard, I was in my little clinic room, and I got this call that in the waiting room someone was there to see me, and this woman was there with her husband and all her family, and again, the whole holding up like Simba, this is our baby, <laughs> and we did it, and she was so excited to say, look, I had this, I stood up, and I had the baby myself, and in labor, I was marching, I was doing this, and she was so excited, and she goes, I burst like my ancestors did, and it was hers, it was no one else's. It's such a bond that you form with the community, actually, being there as these babies are born and knowing them and knowing their families does it feel like home now it does a little way like um done a lot of planting in my garden got a lot of banana trees and <laughs> and uh, we've got a, a boat and you know like the the fishing up here is incredible the fish sing for hooks so we <laughs> we go out whenever we can to the islands i think yeah and and just the like we love we love it when like the when you can go out with the women, you know, take them fishing. Like, uh, and I remember, like, you build connections. You're right. Like, I was hunting um, in one remote community with this guy, and then I find out it's his sister at the hospital who's pregnant. And so I'm like, oh, well, why don't you and all these other girls who are sitting around, let's all go out and let's go fishing. And we did. And and I remember, and, it, and you do have built this trust where I came back, and when she was in labor, I came on shift. And I come in, they, and they said they were like relieved when I walked in the room. They were so happy I was there. And I'd put on, I said, okay, what music do you want? I'd get on YouTube on my phone, put it on for them. And, 
and she'd get really distressed and she'd say, oh, can you, can you pray for me? And I'm like, yeah, sure, all right, all right. And so we pray and then, and then she gets so peaceful. And actually that particular birth, the sister of the guy I went hunting with, she, her baby, after that prayer, that baby came out, and I hadn't seen this before either, but the baby came out clasping its hands, interlocked fingers in front of its face like it was praying coming out um, right in front of its face. And that was so special for those women. They said, oh, that's really important. That's really spiritual. That baby came out praying. <laughs> and it's not just the Aboriginal women. You know, the the midwives do a lot for the town women as well, the, the Ballander or non-Aboriginal women in town. Like we, since we've done these new classes, we've kind of rewritten them and a lot of focus of what I'm talking about, about empowerment. You're not sick, you're not a patient, you're an athlete. And, and now that the cla- these classes were normally just for first-time mums, but they've become popular, and we've had second-time, third-time mums demanding, like, we want the classes too, why are we not getting invited to the classes? So we had to hold a special refresher class for these, these uh, women. And one in particular, she... She, her first birth, I think she was so scared and, and didn't know that much, you know, often with your first and, and a few things happened and she felt like it wasn't her birth. And she came to the class, she said she wanted confidence, she wanted more knowledge and just to be able to do it again. And she felt so pumped up from the class, she was so excited. And then when she went into labor, it's your second and third baby, they come a bit quicker. <laughs> and so, um, this baby was coming and it, she wasn't going to make it to the hospital. You know, she got in the car and, and she got to the car park, you know, at one in the morning and this baby just started coming. And so I ran out. I got the call that she was coming. The baby was on its way. So I ran out to the car park and what I saw was this woman standing there under the stars um, and her husband in front of her catching her baby, lifting it up to her and her bringing it to her chest and them just kind of hugging together with this baby between them under the stars and they did it themselves like she got what she wanted it was all them no one else around like and then we bring them inside and just as we bring them inside torrential rain you know just dumps down this huge storm and it was probably a good thing it washed that car park really well (laughs) (laughs) christian thank you so much for being my guest on conversations No worries. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hello, Maggie Dent here from Parental As Anything. I don't know if there's ever been a tougher time to be a parent, seriously. So I want to answer your big worries and your big questions and hopefully relieve you of that niggling self-doubt that plagues pretty much every parent on the planet. In Parental As Anything, you'll get super practical and useful tips and advice about everything from bedwetting and fighting siblings to how to bring up teenagers and stay sane. And also, we're all about parents giving themselves a break. Make sure you put your phone down when the children are present. Well, I can only parent because I've got my phone because it enables me to send the sneaky work email or all that idea that you're supposed to be present and in the moment and creating special memories. Well, I want to create dinner before I've got to take the kids to football. That would be a creation I'd be proud of. 
<laughs> you can find Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent, in the ABC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>